Greetings and welcome to Witnesses of the King, an exposition of the book of Acts. I want to welcome you today and I want to thank you for coming and listening in and hopefully we can enjoy some time in scripture together and learn something of how the Apostle Paul preached during those early years of the church in the book of Acts. So join me in Acts chapter 13. We're going to start at verse 13. We're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 52. We're going to take it in two bites. And so I'm going to begin by reading through verse 37, then we'll pick up the rest at the end. And I've got a very simple uh, outline today, looking at Paul's sermon that he preaches. We're going to look at its, uh, its topic concerning Israel, then concerning Jesus, and then concerning you. And so we'll take it in that order and we'll take a close look at what Paul has to say. So let's begin going right to the scriptures. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey, and it is accounted in this way. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophet, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son. 
Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Let it be, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for bringing us together, and we thank you, Lord, for this text of Scripture, the account of your servant Paul and how he preached the gospel. Lord, I pray this day that we will, Lord, enjoy this, that we will benefit from this, that we will glorify you in seeing what you have done and in making it known to others. So, Lord, this day with this text, instruct us and lead us and teach us and encourage us and build us up for the work of your ministry that we may go and do likewise. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to give you a quick outline for this. As I mentioned before, the outline is simply Israel, Jesus, and you. And we're going to begin, of course, with Israel. Paul's emphasis at first is to show that this was all planned out by God through the nation Israel. He chose Israel and then he executed in real history all these events that led to Jesus Christ. All these events in his salvation plan steps towards saving you and I from our sins. And so God did this in history and he did this in a way that wrote that it was written down. He did this in a way that is confirmed again and again and again by archaeology to this day. And so while we don't uh, believe these things upon evidence, we believe these things by the grace of God, nevertheless, it is encouraging to know that we have the only faith so rooted in the actual events of history and the things that God has done in the world. So we see that this was planned out by God, executed in real history. And faithful Jews knew for certain that the Messiah would be, that is the Christ, or the anointed one. Christ is just an, a translation of the Hebrew Messiah, which both words meaning the anointed one. That this anointed one would come from the line of David was a, a, an easy and foregone conclusion from the scriptures and something that was known widely to the Jews. Israel was not always faithful. If you look back on their history and you read the Old Testament, uh, you can find it frustrating sometimes. And you're like, why would God put up with these people? And, and why were they so disobedient all the time after everything they had seen and heard and, and known and understood? You know, why were they so difficult? And then you realize that they are illustrating your own, <laughs> my own unfaithfulness to God sometimes and our own lack of faith. And so we, we see ourselves in those things, but nevertheless, we see these failures to the point that they were exiled, that God declared the covenant broken by them, that God gave them, uh, even in one of the prophets, a writ of divorce. But nevertheless, they were brought back into the promised land after their exile by God's great grace, because there were promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob concerning this land and concerning what he would do, and then promises to the nation Israel that no matter their behavior, one day he would return them and make a new covenant. So this history is essential for us to understand. Jesus 
is found there in the Old Testament. He's found in the details of the law. We're taught about him through the sacrificial codes, through details like the cities of refuge, the feasts that the Israelites were given to observe. We see his character as we see God deal with the nation Israel all through the narrative of the Old Testament. We see him described in the typologies that are contained there. There are typologies of Christ. In other words, in the lives of real people like Joseph and David and others, we see things that, that resemble the work and the person of Jesus Christ. And the fulfillment of these things in history is great evidence to the identity of Jesus Christ and a great description of what he came to do. So it is essential that we understand these scriptures because our faith comes from a historic context that is recorded in the Bible. And therefore it would be wise for us to know these things and to understand these things so that we will not fail as the leaders did in Jerusalem. Look at the commentary by Paul on the nature of their failure in verse 27. He said, those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. They condemned the Lord Jesus because of their ignorance of these things, their misunderstanding of what the prophets had been saying all these centuries. So Paul then moves through this summary of Israel, and then he more gets to the point. We see in verse 23 here when the subject turns to Jesus. In verse 23 says, Of this man's offspring, referring of course to David, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as promised. And you can see right from the get-go, Paul is emphasizing here fulfillment in the person of Christ. Fulfillment. And so we see, um, I'll bring you back to the outline here in a moment, that uh, the emphasis of Paul is indeed fulfillment. Fulfillment of several things. Now, I want to first say about fulfillment, the ability to precisely predict far future events and then bring them to pass is a work unique to God. It is something only God can do. People can look into the future, and I know some, some decades ago, the predictions of a man named Nostradamus were really uh, popular, and people were looking at these. But these were always vague kind of things of, of things yet future, but, but God's work has always been very specific. And God's work has been holistic in that not only did he say plainly in some prophecies what would happen, but he also encoded it into the typologies and into the other things, the other instruction of the Old Testament, so that once it came to pass, then the prediction became very clear and, in fact, very detailed. And Jesus, as you know, fulfilled some 300 or so uh, Old Testament prophecies in his first coming alone. Interestingly, the Old Testament says even more about his second coming, but that's another point we'll get to in another day. Look what it says in Isaiah 41, 26. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. 
This is something only God can do. Isaiah 46.10 says this, that God is declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God says with confidence, I'm going to get done everything I want to get done. And in fact, this is exactly what we see happening in history. So please consider these things and consider the uh, fulfillment of Jesus here, that the emphasis is on what he fulfilled. He brings up John the Baptist. And from many uh, scholars and from some testimony in here in the book of Acts itself, we can look at this time in the world, at this first century, after the coming of Jesus, after the beginning of the church, and we can see that John the Baptist was perhaps more famous, probably more famous, than Jesus of Nazareth. Because John the Baptist had fulfilled that role of prophet, had done something that stirred so many, that so many went to him and, and partook in his baptism uh, for repentance, that it, that word of it spread, and it spread through the Jewish community, through the synagogues of all the various communities spread throughout the Roman Empire. And so this is important. This is why Paul brings it up. You've heard of John the Baptist, he, he somewhat says. And John the Baptist was the first prophet to speak since the book of Malachi, since Malachi spoke about 450 years prior to this. And John was expected because there were particular prophecies in Malachi that suggested a prophet would come before the Messiah. And if we take a look at a couple of those very quickly, this is a uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And it says in the very last verses of the book of Malachi, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Orb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So this coming one that would come to prepare the way, he would come before the great and awesome day of the Lord, which as we know began with the coming of Christ, that began what the Bible calls the day of the Lord, and he says, I'll send you Elijah. Now, it doesn't mean he'll literally send Elijah because Elijah was gone. Elijah had been taken up into heaven many centuries before. But Jesus even confirms, yes, if you'll accept it, John the Baptist was Elijah that came because he came in the style of preaching, in the style of dress, even in the same area in which Elijah ministered. And so this is John the Baptist. He comes in that spirit and power of Elijah because they both had the power of the Spirit of God in them. And so God could easily say, yeah, this is Elijah that is coming. This is Elijah that has come. And so he begins with the fulfillment from John the Baptist. John the Baptist turned to him and said, this is the one. I'm not worthy to even untie his sandals. And then we have that this is... Uh, something done by David, that this fulfillment of David, it was well known that he would be of the lineage of David. We see the in 2 Samuel 7, the uh, covenant that God made specifically with David, 
a kind of a subset of the covenant with Israel, something separate to be fulfilled. And Paul's argumentation, look at it to this point. We know God chose the people Israel to bring forth one known as Messiah. He would be of the house of David. He would follow a prophet that that would come, and that was John the Baptist. You know of David. You've heard now of John the Baptist. Now this message of salvation has come to you. But he says, but be careful and consider this. You know, that many of those who were in Jerusalem, the leaders at the time when Jesus came, did not understand, did not heed him, and ended up condemning him, actually fulfilling the scriptures that they should have understood. And so we have a great uh, list of things here that he is fulfilling. And we have a great testimony of Paul to bring these things together and to give them a warning. Don't be like those who were in Jerusalem, those indeed who failed to understand. Now he also then brings forth some very essential elements of the gospel. Paul begins to share the details of Jesus with this, you know, after this warning of the leaders in Jerusalem. And with that said, then Paul begins to share that in fact Jesus was crucified and that in fact Jesus was buried and he was resurrected and then he appeared to many. And he says the most of all things, he says most about this resurrection. And this is what's backed up by Paul. If we take a look at this, and we'll uh, bring up the scriptures here. In verse 33, he begins this. He's fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus from the dead. And then he refers to Psalm 2, verse 7. And notice that this famous verse that says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This verse Paul brings up in reference to the resurrection. So that it's at the resurrection in which this begetting of God, of the Son, takes place. Now, he was always his Son. He was eternally his Son. But it was at this moment, if you read Psalm 2, Psalm 2 talks about the Lord putting everything in the world in subjection under the feet of this one who would come, under the feet of his Son. And he says, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. He began that at the resurrection. He began to take over the world with the kingdom of God at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then this next verse, as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he spoke this way. And now he's uh, referring then to a, another great passage of scripture um, where he says, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And this is reserved referring to a verse in Isaiah chapter 55. And then finally he says, therefore he says in another place, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Notice that's the same one that Peter used in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, as it's accounted there. And this refers to Psalm 16, that the Holy One would not see corruption. And both Paul and Peter make the point David, we know, died, and we know he was buried. We have the testimony of the scriptures that he was buried right here in Jerusalem. And, in fact, then saw corruption. But we know that Jesus did not. An interesting point that was pointed out by Warren Wearsby on this was, uh, in his Bible exposition commentary, was this, that Jesus was 
born the first time from the womb of a virgin and born the second time from a tomb that was also virgin. It had not been used before. And so both his first birth and his rebirth, his resurrection, uh, took place from a place that was clean, from a place that had not seen corruption. And then Paul gives the most important gospel essential, and it's this. The crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and the appearances of Jesus are all essential. If you're going to preach the gospel, you must include those. But then there's another one that must be included, and that is this. These things must be applied to the hearer because it's only in the application to the hearer that these things really begin to be driven home. Look how Paul does this. He begins by referring to it in verse 32. He says, we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children. Until then, he was giving a narrative of what was happening in Israel and and John the Baptist and David. And then he says, now, we're bringing you now the good news that this has been fulfilled. And in verse 38, he really turns it to be relevant. And so now let's read verse 38 to the end because we saw uh, verse 37 ended this, this argumentation supporting the resurrection of Jesus. And he begins in verse 38 saying, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Look at the response from Paul's audience here. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And so he brings this to bear on his audience. He turns it right on them. We are making known to you the forgiveness of sins. See, the temptation is to evaluate the gospel while disconnected from it. 
but it is simply not possible to do that because it has relevance to each and every one of us. And so a great warning here from the Apostle Paul is that we ought to understand the relevance of the gospel. It is the forgiveness of sins. If there's anything in this world that can be said to be uniting all of us, it is this, that we all have sinned. And the Bible says that clearly all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that we all sinned in Adam. So before we were even born, we had this weight of condemnation upon ourselves as part of humanity, as part of Adam. And now comes this opportunity, this proclamation of the forgiveness of sins. And so this is a powerfully good news, incredible news, because we're talking about solving the single greatest problem that mankind has. Do you not see that every problem that we have in this world is the result of sin, either directly or indirectly from the curses that came with it? This is powerfully important, and it begins individually with each one of us. Now, we can't sit back and hope, oh, gee, I just hope that, that enough people repent that God will be nice to the world from now on. That's not the way it works. It has to be each and every one of us. Each of us are responsible for responding to this gospel message. The forgiveness of sins without the gospel message, we are still in our sins. See, there was exactly one chosen nation. There was exactly one King David. There was exactly one Savior, Jesus Christ. So there is just one way to be saved. Jesus came and did what the law could not do. Now, I want you to take a look at this warning that he uses here. Because it's a very interesting use of scripture by the Apostle Paul here. Paul uses a warning from Habakkuk 1.5, and he quotes it there in Acts uh, chapter 13, verses 40 and 41. He says, Beware, lest what, the, what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So the scoffers being addressed here by God, are because they're scoffers, they're not going to believe even if they're told what God is doing. And Paul uses that warning and he says, you be careful that you're not one of these scoffers. Are you one of these scoffers? That's what the Apostle Paul wanted to know. That's what, that's what I'd like to know. Are you one of these scoffers? Are you going to resist this great truth being brought to you? These things that were done in history, the undeniable fact of Jesus Christ and of John the Baptist and of King David and all these things that have been confirmed century after century, are you willing to scoff at it? Are you willing then to condemn this Jesus? Because he came and he claimed to be God and he did the miracles proving that he was God in the flesh. And will you now scoff at that? Will you now question that? Will you now condemn him by saying, no, 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 he must have been something less. He must have been some other thing. For only a fool would say that he was not at all. But will you be one of those fools who tries to compromise, who tries to say, you know, well, you know, he, he must have been a good teacher. Oh, he was just of that religion. He was just for the Jews. It doesn't really apply to all of us. No, 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 Paul's knocked all those down with these statements that he has made. 
that Jesus Christ has come for the forgiveness of sins, a universal appeal to Jew and Gentile. Who are the Gentiles? Everyone but the Jews. And so we're talking about the entire human race. Many did not believe, but many believed. And in Jerusalem, the Jewish leadership did not heed the warning. And these leaders in this city follow their lead and don't heed the warning. In fact, they're given over to jealousy. It says in verse 45, when they saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. What is your reason for resisting the gospel? Is it pride? Is it that I don't want these Christians to have one over on me because of everything I've believed the world says about Christians because of all the false Christians I've seen go before me that didn't act like they should? And as a matter of pride, I won't submit myself to that? Well, pride, as we know, is a chief sin. It's the sin of sins. Is it jealousy of some kind? See, they... They had their little synagogue thing going on there. They had their own, their, their own thing, their own leadership, their own control of the city from a religious point of view, or at least part of the city. And then these new guys come into town, Paul and Barnabas, and all of a sudden they draw to the synagogue more people than they've ever had to the synagogue. And they took that as an indictment of their ministry, as an insult to themselves that, hey, they had never had such a thing. These guys can't have the truth because not so many people would come if these things were actually true. And we don't want these guys to take over and to be in charge. They saw the writing on the wall that if these guys come and they have stayed, then we're going to lose our place and we're going to lose our influence because these guys are evidently greater than us. And we can't have that. Isn't that the real crux of all our denials of Jesus Christ is that we don't want someone else to have it over us. We don't want Jesus to be in charge of our life. We don't want him to move in and take what we think is control. But I think if you really reflect upon this, you'll find that we have no control at all, but rather we are slaves to sin. Without Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that he brings, we are led all around by our own desires, enslaved to the God of this world, is how the Bible describes it. But in him, in the forgiveness of sins, is freedom. Freedom from the guilt. Freedom from the wrath. Great freedom to live by the Spirit, and not by our own ideas, but by that for which we were made. This is the powerful truth of the gospel and the great thing that he has brought forth here in these points that he says. And so how do we want to apply this to ourselves today? Well, I want to encourage you, first of all, uh, don't condemn the Lord Jesus with your unbelief. Remember the failure of the leaders in Jerusalem. As described by Paul, they failed to recognize Jesus. They failed to understand all the signs. If you don't yet believe, that's fine. Take your time. Examine these things. Get with another Christian, one that's a true and faithful Christian that believes every word of the Bible and plainly interprets it. 
and get with that person and have them lead you through some of these things so that you may understand. Begin a, a Bible study of one of the Gospels with one of these Christian friends that you know. Don't yet condemn the Lord Jesus with your unbelief. For those of you that are already in Christ, this gives us a great uh, illustration here in the life of Paul to move on to other opportunities when the gospel is rejected. Paul had a habit always starting at the synagogues because he believed firmly that the gospel was intended for the Jew first and then the Gentile. Jew and Gentile equally, but there was an order to it for Paul. He felt he owed it to the Jewish people for all they had gone through with God and being God's chosen people through all these centuries to preach the gospel to them first. But when they refused it, he continued to preach and he turned to those who would hear. And in this case, that's the Gentiles. Do your loved ones not believe the gospel? Do you realize Jesus' family did not believe him until after he had been resurrected? The gospel moved on. Jesus didn't wait for his family to believe. Jesus didn't get all hung up on that. He went about the Father's business. He called to himself disciples, and he taught those disciples, and then he went through his crucifixion and his burial and his resurrection. And after the resurrection, he appeared to them, and that's when his family began to believe. But sometimes we just need to move on. Sometimes we need to, to take a new opportunity. And to be honest, most of us have led, led lives that leave us with little credibility with those closest to us. Maybe we've come to them before with nonsense. And they're just going to lump the gospel in with that. Maybe it's time to get serious about sharing the gospel and begin to turn to those that you don't know so well. And begin to share the gospel. You realize Paul and Barnabas knew none of these people before coming to this town. Now, they must have heard of Paul because they asked him to get up and preach. But he didn't know them personally. There's no more exciting place to be in the world than on the razor's edge of life and death, the preaching of the gospel. And it is a command given to each and every believer in Jesus Christ that we should go and take this gospel. And so what I encourage you to do is Find the joy of obedience in sharing the gospel. Take a look how this is described here in verse 52. At the end of the passage, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Do you realize Paul and Barnabas just got run out of town? They were being persecuted and they were run out of town, probably with great threats against them. And yet they were filled with joy. And with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they were doing the will of God. It's not in the level of success we achieve that determines the joy in the Christian life. It's not in the worldly numbers or the way the world measures things or how much we're approved by people. We don't depend upon some external approval rating like the politicians do in our world. No, our measure is faithfulness. Faithfulness to obey the commands of Jesus Christ, to take the gospel into the whole world so that many will be saved. And if you have not been at ground zero when God saves another human being, you have not yet fully experienced all that the gospel has to give. 
oh, this is powerful and wonderful. And I pray that you'll embrace it. And, and I pray that you'll consider these things. Let's close then with a word of prayer. Father God, give us faith this day. Give us faith to believe all that you have said. And help us, Lord, to understand these things and help us, Lord, indeed, to seek out your wisdom and your guidance in these things and help us to understand your scriptures concerning these. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us to be properly motivated, Lord, to follow you in faith, to follow Jesus Christ in the proclamation of the gospel. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us will take seriously what we've seen here today and we will indeed reach for faithfulness that will reach for this joy and this great peace with you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're interested in more about these things, you can contact us. And I recommend uh, you give us a contact at whitethronebaptist at gmail.com. I will email that back personally. And you can also find us at whitethrun.org and on various social media uh, that you can link to from there. So I encourage you to consider these things, to weigh these things, and to contact us if you have any questions whatsoever. And until then, may God bless you richly with an awareness of his truth. In Jesus' name.